Hi, welcome to the Revealed Apologetics podcast. My name is Eli Ayala, founder and host of Revealed Apologetics. If you've been blessed by the content of this podcast or the Revealed Apologetics YouTube channel, please consider supporting us. You can support Revealed Apologetics by generously giving at revealedapologetics.com. Choose the donate button and give either through PayPal or Venmo. Or you can simply write a brief review of the podcast on iTunes. Your support is greatly appreciated. If you're interested in having me speak at your event, you can connect with me by filling out the contact info on the Revealed Apologetics website homepage or simply email me at revealedapologetics at gmail.com. Lastly, if you're interested in signing up for my online apologetics course, information on Presup University can also be found on the Revealed Apologetics website. Folks can sign up anytime and the course content will be sent to them. Once again, thank you so much for your support. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Eli Ayala, and today we are back on the topic, uh, well, back on the topic, we're always on the topic of something relating to presuppositional apologetics. Um, part of my, my, my goal in doing this channel is um, not just to uh, make people aware of apologetics in general, but uh, more specifically, the presuppositional method, as you guys know, um, is the specific method that I adhere to. I think it is... Um, reflected in scripture that we should um, do apologetics in this in this fashion. And so uh, one of my goals is just to tackle that topic from every different angle, and hopefully it is useful for folks as they seek to uh, engage in the defense of the faith in a way that is honoring to the Lord and consistent with his word. So um, I am happy to have as my guest today, Toby Sumter, um, who I will invite on the screen with me in just a moment um, to introduce who he is. But just real quick, by way of reminder, if folks are following the channel and they, they know that um, I often have uh, pre-scheduled interviews of various guests, uh, theologians, um, apologists, people like that, I have coming up, just as a reminder, Jason Lyle, Dr. Jason Lyle on November 18th to talk about the topic of the historical Adam. So uh, mark that on your calendar, um, November 18th at 9 p.m. Eastern. Uh, and I got a couple of other things coming up, hopefully moderating a debate uh, with an atheist and a presuppositional apologist. I'll introduce, um, we're just waiting for um, some responses, but I'll introduce uh, that specific debate and the, the date and the time so folks can check that out. I think it's very important that we um, do more than simply talk about, uh, you know, what we would call meta-apologetics, you know, um, talking about apologetics methodology. It's important that we actually do it. And so uh, one of the ways we do that is through formal debate and informal discussions with unbelievers. So hopefully you guys can take what we talk about in this channel and couple that with kind of seeing how that's played out when you're actually interacting with an unbeliever. So I think those uh, those two things are important to, uh, to make a connection with. All right. Well, without further ado, I'd like to introduce uh, Pastor Toby Sumter, who in just a, a few seconds here will introduce who he is. And I just want to remind folks who are listening in, uh, we will be taking questions on everything uh, presuppositional apologetics. So if you have a question about anything, transcendental arguments, preconditions of intelligibility, the problem of the one and the many, all those sorts of interesting topics that tend to relate to uh, presuppositional argumentation, uh, feel free to um, ask your question. If you were in the previous live stream yesterday and you did not get your question answered, then 
retype it in uh, in the in the comments here, and we'll see if we could address some of those. All right. Well, without further ado, I'd like to introduce on the screen with me, Pastor Toby Sumter. How's it going? Uh, can I just call you Toby? Is that okay? That's great. All right, cool. How's it going, man? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Eli. Well, it is a pleasure to have you on. I, I actually saw you for the first time um, on YouTube. You were explaining presuppositional apologetics, and I've heard some good things about you, and I figured, you know what? Let me reach out to him and kind of uh, have him on the show to talk about some presuppositional apologetics. So thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, why don't you take a few moments to tell folks who you are? And if you have content, if you have a channel yourself, a podcast or, or whatever, uh, yeah. you can point folks uh, in that direction. Why don't you take a few moments to do that? Sure. Thanks. Um, so I'm, uh, I'm married uh, and have uh, four kids. I'm a pastor and uh, associate pastor at Christ Church um, here in Moscow, Idaho. Uh, and uh, I am also one of the hosts of a podcast called Cross Politic, which is the that's the logo behind me. And uh, we uh, try to cover um, uh, politics and culture and current events, um, applying the word of God to those um, areas uh, as much as possible. So that's, that's who I am. Now, cross politics, what is, uh, I mean, what is the specific topics that you cover? Is it just politics from a Christian worldview perspective? Do you guys do like analysis and current events and things like that? Yeah. So it's, it's about, I would say half news half. Um, uh, we do a lot of interviews with people who are involved in the public square, um, people who are either politicians themselves uh, or people who are commenting on politics um, and culture. And um, yeah, it's both reporting, but also analysis. And we are trying to, we, we believe that um, basically uh, one of the reasons we're in the mess that we're in is because the church abandoned the public square. Um, and failed to um, proclaim the lordship of Jesus over every square inch of um, the universe. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, we want to, in our own small way, in whatever uh, way God will bless, um, uh, basically um, speak into uh, current events, politics, what's going on, and say, uh, Jesus is lord of this, and, um, and his word has something to say about all of it. Uh, and so we're just, you know, we, you know, everything from immigration policy to taxation policies to um, whatever, you know, uh, Biden said this week or Kamala Harris or whatever, uh, whatever um, insanity is going on in our world. Um, <laughs> try to bring the sanity of, of the gospel, the sanity of uh, Genesis to Revelation, all of God's word uh, to bear um, in this insane world. Yeah. Well, uh, that's super interesting. I think it would be really interesting to hear you kind of unpack for us then. Uh, you said something very interesting there. You said that Christians have uh, sort of uh, retreated from the public square. Um, why do you think that's the case? Perhaps you can give us an example of how Christians have done that yeah. and then maybe connect that with um, this idea of the lordship of Jesus Christ. When we talk about presuppositional apologetics, we talk about the lordship of Christ over our apologetic. But of course, as you know, Toby, this is a worldview issue. And so it applies to areas far beyond apologetics. So why don't you share with us a little bit about how oh. Christians have abandoned the public square and how we can do better to apply the lordship of Jesus Christ to all areas of life. Right. I, I think it's, I think the, the abandoning of the public square is probably happened for numerous reasons and happened in numerous ways, but I think um, it's uh, been driven largely by um, two uh, particular streams. One is, a, um, I think, really bad eschatology, um, okay. where um, basically um, we have largely in, the, in American um, uh, evangelicalism, American uh, Protestantism, I think um, for the last, 
I don't know, roughly century, um, have uh, basically uh, said that um, you, know, you give a lot of, you know, the, the end of the world is near, Jesus is coming back any minute. Um, and of course, I, we, we do profess the physical return of Jesus Christ um, to this earth, but he gave us marching orders uh, to disciple the nations. And basically the exact timing of his return is not really any of our business. Um, but I believe that, you know, sort of the Hal Lindsay's and so on of the last century who say, you know, he's coming back on this date, everybody get ready. Um, the idea of, you know, why would I get involved in, in a politics? Why would I get involved in the culture if um, it doesn't matter, if it's all going to burn? Um, right. I think that's been part of it. So I think there's sort of an escapist mentality uh, that's crept into the church. Um, and I think related to that, closely related to that is a, is a dualism. I think um, uh, a certain kind of uh, you know, Christian Gnosticism of sorts where we've um, pit against, uh, spiritual realities against physical realities and, um, mm. and concrete material realities. And of course, um, Christ is Lord of all. Christ is Lord of our hearts. Christ is Lord of our bodies. Christ is Lord of, of the church. He's also the Lord of the state. He's the Lord of our families, our businesses. Um, and so I think, but if you think that being Christian and being spiritual primarily has to do with things you think in your head or things that are happening inside your heart or in your head, um, and you downplay the importance and significance of, again, material things, um, business, money, politics, uh, whatever, um, again, even if you don't completely deny it, it's not as important to you. And so I think, again, you abandon the public square because it's messy, um, mm -hmm. because it has to do with people, money. Um, immigration reform, you know, whatever. And, um, and I think, but again, if Jesus is Lord of it all, if we believe in the resurrection of the dead, if we believe in the goodness of creation and the fact that the gospel um, has not obliterated uh, the dominion mandate, but has actually restored the dominion mandate, uh, the, the, the great commission sending us into the world to disciple the nations is actually an invitation to the nations to get back to work at the job that God gave Adam in the beginning. Uh, which was hmm. to make the whole world fruitful, uh, to take everything in creation and return it in praise to its maker. Um, everything in creation includes economics, includes politics, sure. includes um, sex and entertainment and, you know, everything in between. Um, and so uh, absolutely the Lordship of Jesus Christ over it all. I mean, he is the new Adam. Uh, he is, he is the one who is restoring um, the whole world um, through the work of his spirit, through the preaching of the gospel um, and so um, all of that is bound together. And one of those pieces that we're trying in particular to highlight, of course, you know, the arts, um, uh, economics, sure. all of it applies, but we're focused particularly on the public square and public policy and politics. Mm. Now, you said something very interesting that one of the reasons why Christians have um, retreated from the public square, you, you made mention of kind of a particular eschatology. Were you referring to kind of the, the sort of premillennial dispensational mindset, um, uh, number one? Is yes. that what you're referring to, number one? And number two, um, do you think such an eschatology is a consistent application or can someone hold that eschatology and consistently apply a kind of presuppositional lordship mindset? Or do you think there's kind of a conflict between uh, those perspectives? I yeah, hope I that question makes sense. It does, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm primarily thinking of, of uh, uh, pre, uh, premillennial dispensationalism, yes. Although I do think um, some of the same pessimism uh, can bleed into some of the other more historic eschatologies sure. as well. So uh, his more historic premillennialism, I think is more biblical um, and uh, an amillennialism sort of more, more biblical, but sometimes I think uh, again, can still some of that pessimism can still seep in and it's like, well, what's the use? Uh, we're not mm -hmm. going to make very much progress anyways. Um, but, um, but 
I think to your to your second question, I think there's a, a fundamental tension um, if uh, if you um, don't see. I mean, I think um, I think people are happily inconsistent. You know, it's, it's sort of this you know glorious gift of God that all of us to sure. some extent <laughs> are inconsistent, and God's grace is you know is covering all of our inconsistencies. And so there's going to be piles of believers in heaven um, who you know had all kinds of things. You know, we all had all of our uh, our blind spots. Um, but yeah, I mean, if, if your, um, if your view is, um, that basically the history of the world is kind of a number of cul-de-sacs, mm-hmm. you know, where, where God's sort of trying different plays that didn't work. I guess I'll try this. Oh, that didn't work. I guess I'll try this. That didn't work. Um, you know, your Lordship theology is kind of impotent. Mm. You know, I mean, it's, it's sort of weak, I mean, but, um, but a more, uh, a covenantal view of history um, seeing a Genesis to Revelation as one great epic um, uh, story um, with Jesus as the hero, um, you know that's that kind of story. I mean, that's Jesus is Lord. He, you know, sure. he was Lord from the Garden. He was he was Lord through the flood. He was Lord through the Exodus. He was Lord uh, through the kingdoms. He you know he was and he's Lord of course um, on the cross. He's Lord in glory now, and he's reigning until he puts all of his enemies beneath his feet as it says in first Corinthians 15, um, you know, that there's kind of different, you know, you can, of course, dispensationalists say Jesus is Lord and praise God that they do. And, you know, and praise God. But, you know, when that's your story, you know, when you say Jesus is Lord, it's kind of a different, a different picture emerges. Sure. That's interesting. So um, I know we we're going to get to the questions later, but there's someone put a question here that I think is relevant. It's kind of what I was going to ask because uh, we're talking about, presuppositionalism, worldview mentality, applying Christian worldview to the area of, of politics. So uh, S. Armstrong asked this question, and maybe you could address it here. Uh, do you think people stop being involved in society uh, because the church has stopped asking the congregation to be involved in the politics of the church? And I don't know what they're asking specifically, but maybe I can kind of rephrase or paraphrase or maybe re-ask the question. Do you think one of the ways that the church has retreated from society is that they have stopped speaking into the area of politics. Yes, absolutely. Okay. I think we, I mean, uh, you know, uh, not to be um, beat up on anybody, but, uh, you know, and Andy Stanley famously preached a series of, of sermons a few years ago called unhitching the old Testament from the new Testament. Mm. Um, I think we, you know, a lot of that has happened where we we're not preaching. All, I mean, we confess that all of the Bible is God's word. All of scripture is God breathed and useful in all these ways to equip the man of God for every good work. And of course, when Paul wrote those words to Timothy, I mean, the primary thing he had, he was working with was the Old Testament. All those scriptures are useful uh, for equipping us to do everything we need to do. Um, And so I think um, absolutely we have, I think the first thing is that we have failed to believe that fully, uh, that it is the word of God. It is authoritative. It is sufficient for all that we need. Secondly, I think what comes with that is I think we've become, you know, we, we pick and choose the, um, the verses that we like. And, you know, even, even reform types sometimes are, you know, camping out in Romans and it's like, you know, Romans for the next six years <laughs> and, you know, yay Romans, but you know, there's the rest of the Bible. Um, and, and, you know, for that matter, in terms of uh, politics in particular, we have whole sections of the Bible that are given to law and justice mm-hmm. and, um, you know, I'm I'm I'm, uh, I'm not at all um, into the whole social justice um, movement, um, but I'm grateful that God has brought it to our doorstep because it's 
requiring us to ask questions about justice. And, right. you know, the Bible has a lot to say about justice. And, um, and so uh, we, yes, the church has failed to be involved uh, in the public square. Christians have failed to be involved thoughtfully, intelligently, courageously in the public square uh, because we have not taken God at his word. Um, and we have not studied his entire word, Genesis to Revelation, to find out what it is um, that is just in the public square. And so, we, you know, I think you have well-meaning Christians that, uh, that end up in the public square and they don't, they have no idea what a biblical worldview is. They have no idea what biblical justice is. And, you know, again, I'm thankful for people trying. Um, I'm, you know, I'm thankful, you know, it, we, you know, last couple, few decades, we at least have a fairly, you know, unanimous on let's not kill babies. Um, and, you know, so like you can get a, an evangelical Christian in who says, I'm pro-life. I'm going to try to stop, you know, I want to end killing babies. Um, and I'm grateful for that. But that's a, you know, the sort of like big E on the eye chart. Yeah, don't kill people. Um, you know, especially <laughs> yeah. the the most innocent and, and those who cannot even defend themselves. Um, sure. But there's a lot more to justice than that. And um, and I think, yeah, we failed to disciple our people. We failed to disciple our nation um, mm -hmm. the way Jesus commanded us to in the Great Commission. Mm, very good. Now, okay, so when we talk about presuppositionalism as an apologetic method, and we talk about lordship over apologetics, and then we apply this to the lordship over every area, every area of life, and a politics is, is one of those areas, and we talk about the importance of applying a Christian worldview to the realm of politics, to the realm of justice, and things like that, what is that supposed to look like, given the fact that facts and issues are always interpreted within a context as we learn from van till right mm -hmm. uh that facts without a context are meaningless um and you have multiple people claiming to operate under the assumption of a christian world and life view but even within that camp you have people who differ over the interpretation of what justice looks like and i'm not talking about black and white issues like abortion i think that's a black and white issue for christians i think we should we should be able to come down pretty strong on, yes. a, on a particular position but there are some other nuanced areas that you have people who have a christian worldview and they're trying to speak to these issues but they differ what does it look like to say i believe in christian justice or i believe in christian this how do we apply that lordship in a, an objective way where it just doesn't become yeah. subjectivity within the context of Christians who disagree with each other? Absolutely. Great question. And I, I mean, I think the answer is the Bible. So the answer is you have to have an, a, a fixed standard, um, okay. you know, and, and so, you know, uh, uh, so the, the, the fundamental question Christians need to be asking all the time in every, in every place, in every area of life, but especially uh, when it comes to issues of justice and morality is by what standard? But, you know, right. what's, what standard are we talking we, about here? We get a bad rap for that. We say it a lot, but I, it's true. I don't, right. I, I don't think a lot of people become ashamed of like, oh, the pre-supper's coming, you know, he's going to say by what standard, but right. that's a completely valid response. I'm glad you said that, but go ahead. I'm sorry. I interrupted you. No, but I just, but I think that's what we want to do though, in all the particulars. So, you know, sure. how, how do we, you know, how do we adjudicate, um, you know, I don't know, uh, 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 racial animosity and crime. How do we adjudicate? Um, you know, what is, what is just taxation? I mean, I mean, our, um, our cry as Christians needs to be to the word and to the standard. Mm -hmm. It's, it's what, it's what Isaiah said to the word, to the standard. And if it's not there, um, then we don't have anything to do with it. Um, we're sure. Christians. And sure. so I think, um, I think that's the bottom line. And I would just say the Bible says a lot about money. It says a lot about economic policy. It says a lot about um, hatred, prejudice, injustice. It says a lot about partiality. Um, you know, it, it says uh, it, it has, I mean, there's, again, criminal code in the Bible 
for us um, mm-hmm. that we should be studying. I mean, the it's it's actually there's you know chapters and chapters books of it, um, and we of all people should know it. Uh, it's mm-hmm. and I think so. I think that's the issue. And I think um, yes, and even you know even within that, I mean, you can have people who agree. Okay, the Bible is our standard, and then we gotta we gotta start hashing it out. And right. we're in kindergarten, basically. I mean, we I mean, our our forefathers would be ashamed of us. Um, you know, the the founders of this country. Um, the Western, um, you know, the, our, our reformational fathers, our Puritan fathers, um, you know, they, they knew what the Bible said about justice and politics. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were the ones establishing this country, our, the colonies and so forth. And they intentionally sought to frame governments after the word of God and the principles found therein. Mm. Now, do you think that, uh, you know, I agree with you, by the way, they would roll over in their grave to uh, briefly pop their head up and, uh, you know, metaphorically speaking, and observe uh, the ignorance. Um, but do you think that's primarily due to the fear of the Old Testament for the modern Christian? They just because a lot of these principles you're speaking of uh, deal with the law and principles of the law that are in the Old Testament. And I know Dr. James White often says, you know, some Christians are operating under uh, a 27 book canon. That's right. Um, and and uh, so, so do you think there's a relation there that the average Christian today just doesn't see or either a relevancy of the Old Testament or they're just afraid to kind of dig deep because it's just so foreign to them? Yeah, ab- absolutely. And again, I would I would lay that at the feet of pastors. I mean, that's that's mm. seminaries and pastors have failed us utterly. Mm. Um, but yes, absolutely. I mean, many Christians have, you know, rarely hear sermons from the Old Testament, much less actually, you know, delve into Deuteronomy or Leviticus or Numbers or whatever. Um, you know, maybe an occasional Psalm and, you know, that's all you got. Um, yeah. but yes, I think it's, uh, um, you know, it, it's, um, it, yeah, it's, that's the problem. Mm. Now I'm going to make a transition here to more specifically the issue of apologetics, but r- before we go, I just feel obligated to do this because someone is, is listening right now and feel, feels kind of convicted of the fact that like, you know, man, I really need to dig into the, into the old Testament. There's a difference between saying you need to read the old Testament more, uh, and actually knowing where to begin. Right. You say you guys got to pray more. It's like, well, how do I pray? You got to study more. Well, how do I do that? Uh, Can you give kind of a brief, uh, you know, piece of advice as to, uh, you know, where should someone start when they say, okay, I'm going to I'm going to dig into the Old Testament. Where should I start? There's 39 books. It's difficult. How would you navigate that and kind of lay that out for someone? Sure. I I mean, I I really do. I mean, it's I, I, you know, maybe just this is the Sunday school answer, but I do think like Christians should be the people who are reading their Bibles, Genesis to Revelation, and then start over. So like, that should just be like default, like just do that and do it like you eat every day. Um, mm. Which means that it, like, when you read the Bible like that, you don't have to, every meal doesn't have to be a steak dinner. Like, I, like, okay. I don't even remember what I had for lunch yesterday. You know, it's like, like, you know, like we eat, but that doesn't mean that it's not working. Mm. So read the whole Bible like it's food because the Bible says it's food. Sure. That'd be the number one. Um, number two, I think a, a really helpful um, Bible study um, tool um, for starting to understand the, the Old Testament better would be, um, I would suggest start in Matthew. Most okay. Bibles actually have footnotes um, every place an Old Testament passage is quoted. And I would suggest work your way through the whole New Testament, um, writing down every Old Testament passage that's quoted. And every time you see it, Go to the Old Testament and read that section and then go back and see how the New Testament writer used it. Hmm. Maybe make a little note about it. And then I would just work through the entire New Testament. So one of the principles of exegesis is allowing the scripture to interpret scripture. You know, let God tell us what his own word means. 
Um, and you have an, it's like, if only we had an authoritative exit, you know, a commentary on the old Testament, <laughs> we do, <laughs> it's called the new Testament. And so let the new Testament authors, the apostles themselves do an old Testament Bible study for you by working your way all the way through uh, the new Testament. Um, and, and I would say that will give you, if you do that and you are just taking notes and you just all the times that the old Testament is quoted, um, that is a great introduction to the old Testament. And then from there, I think you can probably drill down into certain areas, um, where you're, you know, have particular questions or challenges, um, or, or difficulties. But I think, um, uh, one, um, uh, book, I'll just throw out a, another, um, uh, title though, that might be a helpful introduction to thinking about things like this, um, is called the shadow of Christ and the law of Moses, um, mm, by Vern okay. Poitras. Yes. Um, uh, and Poitras is a, was a seminary professor for many years. Um, I think at Westminster seminary. Um, and, uh, but that's a great introduction to seeing Christ in the old Testament. Um, particularly he's working through some of the sections of the law that might be more difficult, but he's trying to show how, um, uh, it's still relevant. Um, and that there are principles of justice and principles of morality that are found there, even though, um, the particulars of the law have expired. Um, mm. the, the, there are, there's what's what theologians call the general equity of the law. Um, the, the principle, the moral principles behind those laws that are still fully applicable and, and they point us to Jesus, but then also point us to what a Christian society ought to look like. Mm, excellent. And folks, if you're interested, Vern Poitras has got some really good work in general, not just in the, the reference that uh, Toby just mentioned there. If you guys are interested, he's got some great work, interesting work in the area of the Trinity. Um, if you guys uh, search back um, in older episodes, I actually had Dr. Poitras on to talk about the Trinity. So you guys can check that out. Maybe after listening to that, you can check out some of his books. He's got some great stuff. Now, let's shift a little bit to a more specified uh, look at the apologetics here. Um, now, when you talk about applying the Lordship of Jesus Christ to the area of politics, um, sometimes the voice of the Christian can be drowned out in the sense that it is viewed as just one other opinion amongst all of the arguing opinions. But of course, as Christians, we believe that the Christian worldview is objectively true. And so uh, sometimes we're going to have to bring really this issue of the truth of the Christian worldview to bear so as to then be able to speak with authority to these specific issues. So how do we link now what we're talking about now, you know, having a voice, speaking to these issues, learning, you know, studying the Bible and engaging, you know, the word of God and applying it to our lives. How do we then uh, demonstrate the truth of the Christian worldview so that we can speak with authority in those areas and have the backing of, you know, the evidence, uh, the coherency, and just the objective truth of the system that we are putting forth? Yeah, um, I, you know, there's several things occur to me. I mean, one is, I mean, I think one of the problems we have had as Christians, and I think this actually goes somewhat to the heart of the whole um, um, presuppositional method has been, I think, we have uh, failed as Christians to the extent that we have been ashamed of the Lordship of Jesus. And, and, and so when we're, we see this, particularly when people are defending the faith and they're unwilling uh, or unable to merely say, the reason why this is true is because the Bible says so. Yes. Um, and, 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 and they say, but I don't believe the Bible and, and it doesn't, who cares? Um, it, you know, it, it doesn't, it, you don't, you, um, it's the word of God. Um, my, my, uh, I, I pastor with, um, Douglas Wilson. And one of the things he's um, fond of saying is, um, that, you know, if, if, if somebody, if you have a loaded gun in your pocket, you know, um, 
your concealed carry, whatever. And you walk up to someone and you say, you know, you, you know, give me all your money. Um, and, uh, and they say, why should I? And you say, cause I have a loaded gun and they say, but I don't believe in loaded guns <laughs> that, you know, or I don't believe you or whatever. Like it's who cares if, if they don't believe you, you have the loaded gun, you have, right. you have the sword of the spirit. Um, and so, um, just because they don't believe in it, just because they pretend not to care, um, uh, gives is, is no, there's no reason to it. Um, fundamentally we do all of our apologetics. We do all of our living before the face of God. Um, and, and that means the fundamental thing we need is the blessing of God. That's what we need is the blessing of God. We need to please him. And if we please him, then he is the one who is going to do the work for us. Um, it, it, and so I would say that in terms of apologetics, of course, but I think that applies to politics as well. And so I think uh, as we bring the word of God to bear on the public square, Christians need to be right out there in front and just say, well, the reason why, um, you know, for example, our, um, our prison system is absolutely wicked mm-hmm. is because the Bible says uh, that you're not allowed to um, put people in, um, in, in chains indefinitely. That's called slavery. Um, that's wicked. You're treating people like animals. Um, and, and if someone has stolen something, the Bible says very clearly that they must return what they have stolen with restitution. Hmm. And then it's over. You don't lock people up and treat them like animals. It's dehumanizing. It's wicked. It's unjust. Um, and why? Well, Exodus 22 says that. (laughs) And they say, well, I don't believe in Exodus 22. We don't care. It's the word of God. We don't care. Now, 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 now I want to clarify for people um, what you're saying sounds dogmatic because it is. And, and people who disagree with you are also dogmatic. So you have multiple dogmatisms at work here. Right. Now, when, when you say, and you can correct me if I, if I'm misinterpreting, when you say, I don't care, this is not just the irrational. I don't care what you have to say. You are willing to unpack the reasons why you think Absolutely. that's true. Absolutely. Right. And, and that gets back to what I'm originally saying. So why think it's true? So you have the unbeliever saying, okay, I know you believe that to be true. Why should I think your book is true? Which brings us right to the quintessential apologetic question. So as a presuppositionalist, how would we engage, you know, we're having these conversations about, you know, politics or these sure. issues of the prison systems. How do we now get behind that to the foundational truth of the Christian worldview? How would you unpack that for someone who is perhaps a skeptic interacting with you on these issues? Yeah, well, there's again layers here. I mean, I would say I, I'm. I think you're free to point to um, just you know how how's it going for you, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like how's your prison system working out, you know, is that going well? I mean, how's the culture going? You got a lot of people, you know, are they are they are they being rehabilitated and and you know mm-hmm. going back into society? How you know how's that going? So I think you can you can walk out just results. That would be one thing. Um, okay. I think also, of course, the, the, we would go back to so. By what standard? Um, why do we? Why do you think this is just? Why, why do you think it is just to incarcerate someone for stealing a car uh, for for twenty years? Mm. Why is that just? Where'd you get that? You know, Lady Justice. You know, in all the old paintings and statues, is a woman blindfolded or blind, um, holding a sword and a set of scales. Okay. And all the old pictures, all the old statues. She's blindfolded or she's blind. And she's got a sword and a set of scales. Um, justice, um, equity, as it's understood historically, not as it's been okay. understood more recently, um, is um, biblically defined as eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Mm-hmm. 
um, that that what you are doing in justice when when some crime has been committed as you are restoring um, a kind of equilibrium to society and culture. Um, that's the biblical standard. Um, okay. Where'd you where'd you get your standard from? Um, and then, and then you know obviously we can keep going further up and further in. Um, you know, uh, there's there's um, also deeper realities going on that presuppositionalism gets at, which is, um, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that people actually um, are naturally at war with God and at war with his system. Um, they're at war with his morality. Um, and they are um, at, at some fundamental level uh, suppressing the truth willfully, um, uh, knowing that there is a God that he, his invisible attributes can be known and seen in, in sure. creation around them. They hate that, um, and they are resolute uh, to defy it, um, and that is infecting um, how they think about the world, how they act in the sure. world. Um, and so, you know, you you, uh, you you can't. And here's the thing: is fundamentally, um, you um, there's no place you can go in this universe where you are actually outside of God, outside right. of God's reality. And, and the attempt, and so um, you and you can't, so you can't stand somewhere and say, "Let me do some testing and see if I if I can, um, you know, prove God." Well, um, you're, God's too big to prove. God's mm-hmm. too real to prove. Um, fundamentally, ultimately, now we have real evidence and real um, and and again um, helpful argumentation. Um, sure. Ultimately, um, it comes down to: Are you going to believe the word of God or the word of man? Right. Okay. So, um, so, okay. So now that you, you, you kind of gave some, uh, a tantalizing phraseology, people might want to tease that apart. You said that God is too big to prove. Um, and I kind of, I kind of know what you mean in a generic sense. Uh, but those who, who tend to be more philosophically minded and kind of want to, well, well, wait a minute. Um, if you're going to tell me that we need to live our lives according to this book that you call the Bible, uh, and you can't prove that your Bible is true, then why should I believe it? Um, so, um, are, are you of the position that you, that the Christian worldview can be proved? And if so, how would you unpack that for someone who's asking for the proof? Yeah, I, I would say, um, yes, it, it can be proven, um, what the right adjective is, but, um, it can be proven, um, humanly. I think it can be proven in a um, to, to uh, sufficiently, but okay. it, but it cannot be proven um, uh, absolutely. It can't be okay. proven um, in there's and so there's um, and, and I would say fundamentally that's because we're finite human beings. Um, mm-hmm. And so we're but I would say absolutely there are all kinds of evidences. I mean the um, scripture itself gives evidences. This you know John says that he has written these things uh, so that you might. Um, no, so that you might believe and have life in his name. Um, you have, um, uh, he's ref- um, Paul references witnesses of the resurrection, miracles, um, the, the testimony of scripture itself, creation. Um, there's multiple evidences that sure. po- pile up. <laughs> and I would say, um, go a long way um, to, uh, they are, they are, um, uh, they are sufficient evidence um, mm-hmm. to uh, compel belief. And at the same time, um, if I would argue, if you could conclusively, absolutely prove, um, uh, the God and, and all of it, um, then, um, he wouldn't be God. You're, you're, 
you're trying, you, you, someone who tries to, who says, I can conclusively, I can add it all up and it's, mm-hmm. um, and there's God. Well, that's not okay. a God. That's something you made up. So, okay. So, so what is your opinion then on the efficacy of say a transcendental argumentation, which tries to prove uh, absolutely that, that the triune God of scripture lives. So are you, um, uh, are you an adherent to those forms of argument or do you kind of use a more uh, presuppositional ish cumulative case sort of deal uh, in terms of which um, uh, reality is best explained by the Christian worldview? What, uh, what kind of presuppositionalism, just to, for me to have a context where you're coming from, I yeah. know uh, folks understand that there's shades within the presuppositional tradition. Uh, where would you land to kind of give folks some context? Because people might agree with you, they might disagree with you, but it kind of gives them uh, kind of a point of reference to see where you're coming from. It, um, give, give me example of, of like a, a brief overview of the transcendental argument. Sure. Um, well, just for folks who are listening, a transcendental argument tries to prove something by the impossibility of the contrary. Transcendental arguments typically ask the question, what must be true in order for something else to be true? So we ask, what are the preconditions for uh, something else? The right. transcendental proof for the uh, Christian worldview is uh, a form of transcendental argumentation, which tries to show that unless the Christian uh, worldview is true, unless the world is the way God says it is, uh, then knowledge, intelligible experience would be impossible. And so we argue that the proof for the truth of the Christian worldview is that if it weren't true, uh, human experience wouldn't be intelligible at all. And we seek to demonstrate that by showing what happens when the Christian worldview is rejected. And we offer another aspect of the proof in which we actually give a positive explanation as to how the Christian worldview does, in fact, provide those preconditions. And if it does, just wrapping it up here, uh, and if it does provide those preconditions, it follows it must. It's the only worldview that can provide those preconditions since you could only have one transcendental foundation. So folks who listen to my channel kind of know that context there. I'm just unpacking it so you can hear where I'm coming from. That's great. So, yeah, so I, I, I think that's actually helpful argumentation. I think okay. it's true, um, okay. um, but the, the 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 qualification I would put on it is I don't think that even that um, logically valid argument mm-hmm. um, is the kind of thing that then um, I mean the the problem is not that um, people don't have the um, a good enough argument the problem is the, that people um, uh, reject God, I agree. Um, and, and so um, fundamentally God has to change their hearts, um, and but there's not any way of arguing, I guess the point is, is there's no way of arguing that brings God, we, we can't summon God up yes. in, in, ter- in terms of such that the argument will be, will bring God um, so um, uh, fully and completely present that it right. breaks their hearts and they repent on the spot. Right. Because, I would we, agree. Have, because we have summoned up the, the perfect argument. Um, sure. So I think there's true arguments that are sufficient arguments, including okay. the one that you've just um, walked through. Um, but I would also say it's um, it's sufficient to make them culpable. They yep. they, they ought they need to repent right now. Um, yeah. But, but it it doesn't. Um, it's it's God Himself that will have to break their hard hearts, give them new hearts and eyes that can see and ears that can hear, um, because um, they're dead in their sins. No, and I'm glad you said that because it's very helpful because um, then we make the important distinction because I would agree with everything you, you just said there because um, we would then make the distinction between proof and persuasion. So I, I think we can prove God, but whether someone is persuaded, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And so I think that's an important distinction uh, um, to keep in mind. Um, all right. Well, that that's super helpful. Thank you for that. Um, all right. So um, what are some ways that we could apply presuppositional apologetics to say... Um, 
people who come from uh, another religious perspective. So when we take a look at the political scene. We have uh, we have unbelievers of all different shades, right? Um, kind of voicing their views and uh, arguing for uh, the hearts and the minds of people who are engaged in these sorts of debates. Um, how would a presuppositionalist engage someone from a, a, another religious perspective that perhaps has, you know, a book with the divine revelation that they, they, they would claim? How would you interact with someone like that um, yeah. as we navigate these waters of saying here, this is why we think the Bible should be the foundation so that we can speak authoritatively to these issues? Yeah, it's a good question. So I, I live in Idaho. There's a lot of Mormons here, actually. Um, okay. just, just north of Utah. So I have interacted over the years with a number of Mormons. Um, mm -hmm. We also live in a university town and actually in our, our university, um, I've also interacted with a lot of Muslims uh, who are here um, overseas. So I've, I've done that over the years. Um, and, I, and I think, um, obviously, I, I, don't, I don't know that there's, you know, it's not like there's a, a you know, a, a two minute um, gut punch, you know, sure. um, judo move that does it all quickly. <laughs> but I think the, the general approach is to um, ask, I mean, I think what you want to do is, is you're, you're asking, um, why is your book, your standard, um, authoritative? Why is it trustworthy? Um, is it, um, consistent? Is it coherent? Is it reasonable? Um, I think those kinds of things, um, along with what is the fruit that it produces, um, and, and so forth. Um, and then you're comparing that with, with scripture, uh, but mm. that, that would be largely, um, uh, and obviously and what you're trying to get to, um, you know, fundamentally is, you know, why, why do you believe this? Um, you know, this is your standard. Um, why? Um, mm. and, um, and you know, what are the reasons for it? What is the, um, uh, what is the evidence for it and so forth? And is it, is it consistent? Is it coherent? Um, and what are, and what are the results and comparing that to, um, the Christian faith and, and scripture. So you do like kind of a worldview analysis, like, Hey, what's your foundation? Why do you think it's true? And kind of listen yeah. to what they have to say and do kind of a worldview comparison to say, Hey, you know, this is why Christianity is better. Right. right. You even not use that language, but okay. All right. Absolutely. So, so, so you would, um, you would use what uh, we would often call in, in uh, you know, those who are in the apologetic trade, um, an internal critique of, of the unbelievers worldview. Um, so why don't we actually take uh, an example of that? Now, you mentioned Mormonism. So what would an internal worldview critique look like uh, if you were to do it to a person who holds to the Mormon religion? Yeah, I would um, you know, begin walking through, um, you know, j just, um, you, know, what, you know, where did Joseph Smith come from? Um, sure. you, know, uh, you know, what is it, the background? What is his story? Um, then, you know, where did, the, where did the Book of Mormon come from? Um, and you know, are, are you okay with, you know, changes to the Book of Mormon? Are you okay with the fact that, um, you know, I don't know, black people are second, you know, second class human beings, according to the original version? Um, are, you know, are you okay with polygamy? Why or why not? Um, you know, and, and so I would, I would walk through um, some of those kinds of things um, with them and, um, and, and ask them, you know, why do you trust these things? Um, why? And, um, and, you know, I think, um, Ultimately, what I'm going to be driving at, though, is the system of doctrine that's found in the Book of Mormon is a is a system of works righteousness, um, with really no um, fund, uh, real clear hope of salvation, no um, no real understanding of grace. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, you know, what I've done in the past is, you know, in addition to sort of some some of those uh, sort of inconsistencies and incoherences in the in the uh, book itself, drive hard at um, the fact that, um, uh, you know you don't, you don't know, um, that, um, 
that you are beloved by God. Uh, you don't you don't know that you're accepted by God. You don't know that all of your sins are forgiven. You're hopeful. You're trying hard. Um, you you think that God will help you if you do your part. Um, but that that's not real. That's not justification. Um, that's not peace. That's not joy. Um, you don't know um, that you are fully and completely accepted by God. You are loved by Him. Um, that you were under His grace and under His blessing. Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, you talk to Mormons; they they don't have that. They're they're um, they're trying. Um, uh, they they want to have peace. They want to um, they 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 you know think they have semblances of joy. You know, there's sort of that burning in the bosom thing going on. But um, but you know, talk to them. Does it last? No. Is it inconsistent? Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And and then of course you know given the fact that you know there um, you can actually talk about Jesus with them because they they you know profess to believe in the Bible and so a sure. big part of what you want to drive at too is showing them the inconsistencies between the Book of Mormon and the Bible and mm-hmm. the Jesus that is presented in the Bible is not the same Jesus um, that is is being presented in the Book of Mormon um, mm-hmm. and so I, I, that would be kind of a, a sketch. Now I really like what you mentioned where, where you said you know does it work what does it look like. Um, Again, looking at the practical implications of a view doesn't necessarily prove or disprove, but I, I'm glad you mentioned it because it's a powerful tool in real life conversation so that we can set the practical uh, impact of having Jesus in our life versus the practical impact of not having Jesus in our life. So it has a very powerful existential punch to it when we're able to talk about those issues. So I'm actually very glad that you you mentioned that because not a lot of people uh, tend to mention that specific element. So, um, all right, well, thank you so much for that. Now, I, I want to make an important connection here uh, with the presuppositional methodology and the importance and role of theology. Um, so when we're talking about people having to defend the faith using a presuppositional method, engaging unbelievers, um, I always, I always tell people the best book on apologetics and it sounds super Christian, super cheesy, uh, but it's true. The best book on Christian apologetics is the Bible itself, because in my experience, and perhaps you share this, like 90% of the objections against the Christian faith is based upon misunderstandings, uh, and caricatures right. of the Christian faith. Right. Um, so reading the Bible, living in the scriptures is super important. Now, what role does theology play, systematic theology play in being better equipped to utilize a presuppositional approach? Can, um, can you be a little more specific? Are you looking at anything in particular? What, what are you thinking there? Well, uh, what I'm asking is uh, when we're doing apologetics, our apologetic is not detached from our the soil of Christian theology. So I, I guess I'm asking you, what is the importance of knowing theology as it relates to having a powerful apologetic? Yeah. Well, I mean, so much of the presuppositional apologetic method is is based on actually a, a you know, theology proper in terms of who God is and what kind of God we serve. Um, that that um, his um, you know his, his you know the the idea that in Him we live and move and have our being. You know, all that we are is is held together by His Word. Um, those would be um, you know key um, details where. Um, you know, there's, there's nowhere you can go in this universe where you are not, um, you know, being held together constantly by him. Um, so there's certain kind of, you know, there's, there's an ontology there, uh, uh, you know, sort of a, a theological ontology, but, but also I think um, necessarily then an epistemology of, okay. um, you know, the thoughts that are going through your mind, the, 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 you know, that is held together by the word of God. Um, you, we are, we are radically contingent, um, creatures. I think also a soteriology is all bound up in all of this. I, I alluded to this earlier, but, um, you're, um, you know, 
the the presuppositional methodology is is based fundamentally, I think, on a uh, you know what is you know uh, uh, popularly referred to as Calvinism. Um, the the idea that um, we are um, we are dead in our sins and trespasses, as it says in Ephesians uh, two, um, and that we are dead unless God makes us alive. Um, and it's it's not as though we are sick and we need some medicine. No, we're dead and we need resurrection. Um, and so, and, and the task of the preacher, and I would say uh, to a, a lesser extent, but also a significant uh, extent, an apologist um, is proclaiming the truth of the gospel, proclaiming Christ crucified. And all of us, whenever we're doing that, we're, we're like, um, we're like Ezekiel in the graveyard. Um, we're Ezekiel preaching uh, to, to dry bones. And, and so all of our arguments um, all of my most persuasive uh, metaphors or analogies or whatever turns of phrase, um, all my winsomeness is nothing. Um, you know, dead bones don't care. <laughs> dead, <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, just walk through a cemetery sometime and just to remind yourself, like, you know, try to get them to care. They, they don't. Um, but if, but, you know, can these bones live? Well, Lord, you know. And, um, and so the, um, I think that's a that's the soteriology that's so significant in this uh, in this yeah. um, project is that um, we are we are vessels we are messengers um, and God is um, often pleased to use our mm. faltering attempts and at the same time it never adds up to resurrection it's not like you you look you know you're like wow look at that you know I no. that was the argument it was the killer it was the clincher no it wasn't it was it was the spirit of God showed up and made dead people alive. Mm. Um, and so that's, and, and fundamentally what presuppositionalism is trying to do is actually trying to get people to look at their dead hearts, um, which is hard to do because dead hearts don't want to look at dead hearts. Um, but you're, you know, you're fundamentally trying to say, look, you know, you all, everything you have, everything that you are is a gift from God. Um, and, and, and you say, I don't know if there's a God, what are you insane? You know, <laughs> like you have hands and they work, you know, <laughs> like your eyes and your, like you can, have you tasted chocolate? <laughs> you know, like that's, you know, you have this the, gift cho from the chocolate proof for God's existence. There's, there's well, probably uh, a transcendental argument somewhere. In there. Absolutely. Absolutely. But that's, but that's, again, it's, um, that's a, but there's a soteriology, um, baked in, sure. uh, to that. And sure. I, I talked earlier about, you know, um, doctrine of scripture as well. I mean, the, the fact that we're talking, you know, why would we bring out the word of God to people who don't believe in the word of God? Because mm -hmm. it's the word of God. Um, and, and, um, and yeah, and is there room for proving its coherence, its you know, its impact, um, its truthfulness, all of the, its historicity? Yeah, absolutely. We can we can prove all of we can. I don't mind bringing those evidences to bear at all. Um, sure. But that's not making it the word of God. It is the word of God, um, uh, whether or not anyone believes. It is a loaded gun. It is a sword. Very good. Now, I just want to remind folks, if you have any questions, you can write them in the comments. Uh, preface your question with question uh, so that I could differentiate them bet uh, between the questions and the comments. I'm going to have one more question uh, for you, uh, Pastor Toby, before we uh, go to some of the comments and questions here. So there are a few questions here for you. Um, but here's my here's my question. And, and this often comes up. Um, what is the relationship between presuppositional methodology and Calvinism? Uh, I often get the question, do you have to be a Calvinist to be a consistent presuppositionalist? What's the relationship there? Yeah. Um, if I've, I don't know that I would say um, you absolutely have to be a Calvinist to be a presupposition presuppositionalist, but I would think that you would be kind of an odd presuppositionalist. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would, I would sort of want to press you on like, so why, <laughs> why, why, uh, you know, you've got the Lordship of Christ. You've got, you know, the, you know, 
the you know infinity of God. Um, you've you've got um, doctrine of Scripture. You understand that fundamentally this is a dead heart problem. So where's the hangup? <laughs> I, you know, I guess that would be what I want to know. Um, but uh, you know, I, I suppose I don't know, maybe. Uh, maybe you got a four-point Calvinist or something like that that maybe is a little um, iffy on uh, perseverance of the saints or something like that. I don't know. Um, I got but, an uh, Amaraldian presuppositionalist. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> um, uh, but I, I think it's. I think they're closely connected. I think they are. Sure. Um, uh, it. Uh, I think presuppositional apologetics really is, in in many respects, an apologetic method that is just developed directly out of the soil of Calvinism. It's just saying if these things are true. Um, then how ought we to proclaim the gospel and defend the faith? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that's what you know, Van Til and uh, John Frame and others and Greg Bonson and so on, and that's what they're, they were attempting to do and have attempted to do. Hmm. Well, thank you for that. That's excellent. All right. Well, at this point, I'm going to move into the question segment where uh, I'll take some questions here. Are you okay with questions unrelated to our topic? Because I know I guess some people are familiar with who you are. Um, sure. All right. Um, okay. Let's see here. So uh, Augerer asks, would the modern vocabulary of culture wars actually be related to the principalities and powers we are called to engage? Um, yes. I'm not sure if I understand exact all that he's uh, intended to ask there, but um, in the in the Bible, uh, principalities and powers, I um, would argue and could demonstrate um, from several texts, um, include human authorities and spiritual powers all of those things. And so um, kings, princes, governors, judges, um, people in authority who have power are some of the principalities and powers. And then I would say in some context, it's included um, certain kinds of spiritual forces that are at work in the world as well. And, um, and so, yes, absolutely. Uh, principalities and powers is, is a, is a, uh, not just a spiritual term, but also political. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, and so when, when it says that, um, that Christ is putting all the principalities and powers underneath his feet, I mean, that's a, that's a political um, uh, statement. And, um, and so that includes all who wield authority in, in a certain respect, um, mm-hmm. all of us, that authority comes from Christ and therefore it needs to be wielded uh, in submission to Christ. And so, yes, culture wars, fundamentally the you know, culture war, whatever um, the one that matters, at least obviously there, there may be others, but the one that I'm interested in, the one that Christians are interested in are, is the one where we are bringing the Lordship of Christ to, every, you know, we're, we're commanding um, everyone to bow the knee to Jesus. So sure. every Prince, every King, every parliament member, every uh, Supreme court justice, every mayor, every police chief, um, every pastor, every father, every authority uh, must bow to King Jesus and, um, and yes, there are spiritual forces at work. Um, so, um, be on your guard, confess your sins, um, and, uh, pray at all times. Amen. Thank you for that. Uh, so Scott has a question here, uh, with respect to reconstructionism. He says, how has pastor Doug Wilson been so miraculously successful when the rest of the reconstructionist movement seems to be falling apart because of infighting? Now we know, uh, reconstructionism, maybe you could define that for folks. There is a lot of infighting in these kind of theological discussions. And I suppose from this person's perspective, pastor, uh, Doug has been successful in not succumbing to some of those infighting sort of things. Um, is that something you could speak to? How has he been able to kind of navigate uh, these issues and avoid uh, some of the issues that other groups have um, unfortunately fallen into? Yeah. So uh, yeah, for those who don't know, uh, so reconstructionism is sort of a broad term, I think, I think coined by um, Rush Dooney um, okay. uh, back in the sixties. 
Um, uh, but basically, broadly, is um, is attempting to describe the idea that um, all of life should be um, reconstructed according to the Word of God. Um, that's mm. broadly what it intends. Uh, incidentally, I was just reading a book uh, this last week in which um, Rush Dooney's, I, I was uh, I was excited sort of to find that uh, Rush Dooney's Institutes of Biblical Law were uh, Christianity Today's Book of the Year in 1976. Oh, wow. Which, I, you know, I, I've, I've just been sort of chuckling about that ever since I read that. And uh, uh, so Christianity Today, how do you feel about that? Um, anyways, um, <laughs> I, yeah, there's, there was, I think, um, th- to the answer to the question, I, th- I think the reason why... Um, uh, God has blessed um, uh, Pastor Doug Wilson um, and and uh, our community as much as he has um, is, is actually related to I think the um, one of the key things that Pastor Doug inherited from his dad, who's who's a was an evangelical evangelist, is still living um, uh, for many 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 years. His ministry really focused on um, very practical Christianity. Um, and I think um, the problem with a lot of reconstructionists, theonomists, whatever, is I think they they lose the uh, forest for the trees. Um, mm-hmm. And um, and so um, you know the most in, the most important place to practice biblical justice is in your heart. Mm. <laughs> if you are not confessing your sins and getting clean before God every day, then you have no business talking to anybody else about their sins. And I think piles and piles of people who call themselves reconstructionists are running around with logs in their eyes, trying to take other people's specs out. Um, mm-hmm. and it, and it makes uh, traffic jams. So I think, you know, you know, practice <laughs> biblical justice, start when your personal life, reconstruct your life according to the word of God. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, now go to your marriage. Are you in fellowship with your wife? Are you faithful to your wife? Are, are you ministering to her? Like Christ loved the church. Are you laying your life down for her? Are you, are you making her more and more like Jesus? Now mm. go to your kids. Are your kids growing up loving the Lord Jesus? Do they love him? Are they excited to go to church with you? Um, I, you know, are they on your team? Is there loyalty? Have you, are, do you have fellowship together? Do you love dinner time? Okay. Reconstruct your family according to the word of God. Okay. Mm. Now go to church. <laughs> love the brothers and sisters in your church. Submit to your elders. Um, pray for your pastor and your elders. Be in fellowship with one another. Confess your sins to one another. Worship God faithfully. Okay. Reconstruct church. Okay. I mean, we have nothing really to say to the magistrate if we don't have our house in order. Hmm. I mean, you know, if, if you're fussing, if you're sitting on a on a soapbox on the internet, cranking about what you know the latest thing that the Supreme Court did or Kamala Harris said or whatever. I mean, again, like you know, I, I know we all have eyes in our head and we can you know we can see it and we can say it, but like. If you're sitting on a soapbox, you know, if it's taking up time and energy, the question is, is, you know, is your house in order? Is your family in order? Is your heart clean? Are you in fellowship? Are you walking in the joy of the Lord? Okay. In that place, then, okay, go fight, win. But I think many, many reconstructionist communities from what I can, I, I, I that's overstatement from what I can tell, look, looking from a distance, sure. I would say it looks to me like, um, that's what's happened is that they don't have their own houses in order, their own families, their own churches. Mm-hmm. They're not walking in the joy of the Lord. They don't have first things first. Um, but you, you need to, you need to practice justice there in little ways first. He was faithful in little can be faithful in much. Um, mm-hmm. you know, if, if we're going to start talking about executing people, that's what justice is, right? I mean, we're talking about the sword, if we're talking about wielding the sword. You better get really good. Uh, with, you know, being just with dealing out spankings, right? I mean, like, you know, if you're, you know, if you're, if you're disciplining your kids, are you doing it in justice? You know, do you understand that? Are, are the principles of justice being walked out in your home? And are you in, are you in the joy of the Lord? Is it a happy place? 
Mm, very good. Thank you for that. Uh, here's a question that uh, Scott asks is a kind of follow going in order here. So he's got a couple, but um, we'll do uh, is, is two more questions. Okay. I know you have to go at the top of the hour. Is, is that okay? Uh, we can cut it shorter. If sure. Need to. It's two more. Problem. All right. Two more. So um, here's another one uh, from Scott. He says, reform critics of federal vision tend to blame federal vision on Van Til and Presup. Um, I'm not familiar with federal vision. So um, I guess this person is and, and sees that perhaps there's a link between federal vision and uh, Cornelius Van Til and presuppositionalism. Is there um, a relationship there as far as you can tell? I, I am not sure um, on that one. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, that's good. That was quick. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, all right. Let's see here. We're scrolling down. Uh, all right. Here's a question by Sage. Interesting question. How do you presuppers know that God is omniscient? So we make claims about God. Uh, how do we know uh, that he has the features that uh, the Bible says that he does? Well, I mean, I, I would, you know, there's there's two questions there. How do we know? Well, I would say, well, the Bible tells us that he knows. Um, but I, I would also say, um, it, you know, you you have, to, you know, you can also, you can, you know, run the opposite. He doesn't know everything. What what, what kind of world do you end up in there? It's completely inconsistent with um, uh, a, um, I, I would say, again, you end up with um, uh, maybe a random view of history, cul-de-sac view of history, um, rather than a, a view of history that sees God as un, um, is, is consistently unrolling um, a plan um, that's based on his omniscience, based on his, his, his knowledge. Um, I don't know, that's where I would start. I don't know if you would add to that. Yeah, no, that's fine. I mean, uh, omniscience is something that is revealed. Um, but I would also argue that omniscience needs to be implicitly presupposed in order to have knowledge about anything. Uh, so if we were to say, for example, there's no omniscience anywhere, then there can be some element of reality that can falsify things we think we know. Um, so I would think that the um, omniscience of God provides a theological background uh, for a coherent worldview um, and that relates to issues of both metaphysics and epistemology, things like that. So that's where I would stand um, there. In, in order to know something, there must be omniscience somewhere. If I can say it in very simple terms, that, that's my view. Um, all right. Um, let's see here. Um, this is, <laughs> if I could squeeze this question in, it might be, it might be a curveball, uh, okay. maybe. And then, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up here. Uh, I'm so sorry. I hope these questions are okay. I, I mean, they're great. They, they, Okay. Okay. So Augur asks, uh, do you presuppose Calvinism for intelligibility with a priori reasoning? So here, let me clarify, because he's asked questions related to this. So I argue that the Christian worldview, right, provides the necessary preconditions for intelligible experience. And then there was the question that was asked, I asked you about the connection between um, presuppositionalism and Calvinism. Mm -hmm. And so, and so if we take the idea that the Christian worldview that provides those preconditions for intelligible experience is a Calvinistic understanding. Mm -hmm. Then he's asking, do you presuppose Calvinism for intelligibility, you know, and all the theological trappings that go along with that. Um, so I'm not sure if that question is clear enough. If you want to take a stab at it, um, yeah. I have some things to say, but I'll, I'll let you go first and maybe I'll share some of my thoughts. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the answer is yes. Um, but, but I also right. think that um, you, cause I think um, so, um, the issue isn't necessarily everything that's going through our minds when we talk about presupposition. What we're sure. talking about is reality. What is the case? And obviously, um, you know, one of Van Til's um, lines that he loved to say was thinking God's thoughts after him. You know, that's 
uh, what we're attempting to do, faithful presuppositionalism, is simply trying to think God's thoughts after him, trying to echo reality. Um, and so um, to the extent that we can, that's what we're trying to do, is we're trying to think consistently based on what is actually real. And so Calvinism is real. <laughs> so um, so in, in that sense, absolutely. Now, um, you know, we're all reasoning with greater or lesser degrees of consistency and coherence. We're, we're sure. creatures. Um, and that's. Well, I think you froze up there, Toby. I don't know if that would you be still my shorthand. Okay. I'm sorry. You froze up just a, a, a little ah. bit there. Um, but I, I think we got you what you, you had to say. Yeah. Um, so, so, so people can presuppose Calvinism without knowing that they're presupposing a Calvinistic understanding exactly. of the world. Exactly. Right. right. Okay. Um, so for example, as I said, uh, omniscience in order to have knowledge, omniscience has to exist somewhere. Now you might not explicitly believe in omniscience, but in order for your specific assertions of knowledge to be possible, you have to be presupposing those categories and it would be the job of the apologist to kind of unravel that and, and unpack that. Uh, that, that would be what I would add to that. Um, all right. Well, um, we are at the top of the hour. Um, I'm going to stay on just a little bit longer because there are a few questions still lingering there and I, I want to respect your time, but, uh, Toby, I want to say thank you so much. This has been a really, really good, um, uh, conversation. I love your pastor's heart. When you get going, uh, you're not one of those like monotone, boring talkers. Uh, I feel like when you speak to the issues of like politics and family, you're preaching, but what lies behind that also is, is kind of just a genuine love for the Lord that comes through and what you have to say. So thank you so much. I appreciate it, Eli. Thanks for very much for having me on your show. All right. And uh, is there, can you just uh, let folks know who are listening in just now and missed the beginning where they can find um, your content or podcast or a blog yeah. that you might have? Yes, sir. Um, so I'm a pastor at, at Christ Church here in Moscow, Idaho. You can find that website at Christ Kirk, K I R K. It's the old Scottish word for church, Christkirk.com. Um, I'm also at CrossPolitik, um, singular, CrossPolitik.com. Um, where you can uh, find uh, the podcast. And then I also um, have a blog um, that you can find at uh, com. So my my full name with my initial j.com. So. All right. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. And uh, hopefully we can connect again in the future and do something else if you're okay with it. I, I'd be happy to, Eli. I really appreciate it. Thanks for what you're doing. All right. God bless, brother. Uh, God bless. You can click off. I'm just going to stick on a little bit longer. And uh, thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Well, that was wonderful. Um, I, I heard about Toby. Um, I've seen him around on Facebook and YouTube, and I, I thought he had a lot of great things to say. And, and in this discussion as well, um, I very much appreciated um, what he had to say, especially with the application of the Christian worldview uh, to the realm of politics. I think that needs to be uh, done with the conviction of the truth of the word of God. Right. And then applying those convictions to every area of life. He's speaking about uh, the importance of, of the lordship of Jesus Christ over every area, every facet of our life. The lordship of Jesus Christ is never compartmentalized. It is always applied in all things. And so I, I'm as Christians, I, I think we could all uh, do a better job at um, consistently applying that truth. All right. Well, I kind of feel bad. Um, uh, Toby had to leave. He had kind of like a, an hour, hour, an hour. I can't even talk an hour window. There we go. <laughs> Almost started speaking in tongues there. Um, and so I want to respect this time, but at the same time, uh, I know in the live stream, uh, yesterday, there were some questions that didn't get answered. So I'm going to try to my best to take a stab at some of these questions. And I apologize if I skip your question, it's definitely not on purpose. It's just how it appears on the little thread that I'm scrolling down. So let's see where we left off and see if I can tackle a couple of them. 
All right. Uh, This is not a question, but it's a comment. Mr. C says, doesn't that imply a decision on our part? I think uh, if I'm correct, Mr. C is referencing something that Toby said with respect to the sovereignty of God and salvation and that it is the work of the spirit to persuade. Um, and so I, I think uh, maybe that's the context there. Uh, yeah, I would say that man has to make a decision, uh, but man making a decision is not inconsistent with a Calvinistic understanding of soteriology. Um, that decision, that utilization of the will is itself a gift of God. Faith is uh, granted to the, uh, granted to us. Philippians 1, 29, it is a gift of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Um, so as Calvinists, we would affirm uh, both the sovereign work of God upon the heart of the uh, unbeliever, giving him a heart of flesh and removing his heart of stone. Um, and once his nature is changed, the person does make a genuine choice. Um, out of a new nature to um, place his faith in Jesus Christ. So um, if that's what Mr. C means, I, I hope that applies to what he's trying to ask there. All right, let's go here. Do, 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 do. All right, I got a couple of questions here. Yeah, Pink Noise, um, he says, hey, Eli, um, we need to see that part two with Leighton Flowers and Sean Cole. Absolutely. Um, I want to get that set up. Um, I was actually, um, I think I had COVID around that time. And so it was, uh, I had them on the first time and then with COVID, I, it kind of messed me up and I really never followed up, uh, but they were definitely interested in doing another, another round. So hopefully we can get that done, uh, in the future. Okay. Thank you for that. Uh, Marcus, uh, Lobato asks, uh, how is the best way to respond the, to the criticisms that we must refute every worldview conceivable to prove Christianity? Uh, yeah, I would reject that. That's a common kind of objection to uh, transcendental argumentation when we argue, for example, that the Christian worldview provides the necessary preconditions for intelligible experience and knowledge. We are, in essence, saying that the Christian worldview is the only transcendental. You cannot have two transcendental foundations um, that provide equally uh, the preconditions for intelligible experience and knowledge. If, if you have two ultimates, then you have kind of a, a worldview plurality and you're still stuck in some form of skepticism as a result. So you can only have one transcendental. But here's the thing. If Christianity does provide the transcendental preconditions for intelligible experience and knowledge, if it in fact does it, when the Christian lays it out and shows here, given the Christian metaphysic, given the Christian epistemology and ethic, the, the three fundamental foundations of a worldview, if the Christian worldview provides those preconditions, then it follows that it must be the only worldview that provides them because you cannot have more than one uh, necessary precondition uh, for intelligible experience. Okay. So I would argue that if you demonstrate that Christianity is a necessary precondition, right? Laying the, the, the case out, then it follows that it is the only one since you can't have multiple transcendental. So you do not have to inductively disprove every competing perspective. All you need to do is show that Christianity does in fact meet those preconditions. And because of the nature of transcendentals, you could only have one foundation. So I would reject um, this common uh, objection where, where, where you know, folks will say something to the effect, you have to disprove every other worldview. You can't just say Christianity is true without actually going through every single possible option out there. Okay. All right. Uh, Mr. C asked the question, can I ask to be saved? Yes, absolutely. Um, the Bible says if you, uh, those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Uh, just know this, that your calling upon the name of the Lord is itself a gift of God, and it would be a result of the working of God's spirit in your heart. Um, so yes, um, I believe you can ask to be saved and I would hope that you genuinely do so. I know that you, uh, come on a lot of these, um, a lot of the videos, and you ask great questions, by the way, Mr. C. I do appreciate it. Um, but I do hope that as you listen um, uh, and 
God uses the words that are spoken here, even in the midst of kind of technical theology and philosophy, uh, that God uses this to convict your heart and bring you to repentance. Because the Bible even says not only that faith is a gift of God, not only that faith is granted to you, Philippians 1.29, uh, repentance itself is granted as well, 2 Timothy 2.24. So uh, yes, you can ask to be saved, and uh, my prayer is that you do. So thank you so much for that question, Mr. C. Uh, Pink Noise asks the question, can truth be illogical? Nope, it cannot be illogical. If something is illogical, it violates the laws of logic. It is by definition incoherent, okay? And if something is true, one of the trademark foundations of that which is true is consistency, okay? So if something is not, is not consistent, it cannot be true, all right? To say that truth can be illogical would um would would literally be suggesting that logical impossibilities are possible um so that would actually be an incoherency and so i would say that uh truth cannot be illogical in that regard all right thank you so much pink noise um let's see here do, 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 do. yeah Alyssa scott um ask the question can you give a few examples of transcendental arguments uh, absolutely uh, that's a good question um it's important to understand that transcendental argumentation is not something that is an idiosyncrasy of a presuppositional you know form of argumentation presuppositionalists utilize a transcendental argument but transcendental arguments actually have a long rich history throughout the course of western philosophy you see transcendental forms of argumentation in aristotle when he's trying to demonstrate the necessity of the law of non-contradiction uh, so that you prove the law of non-contradiction by the impossibility of the contrary if you uh, deny the law of non-contradiction you have to assume it if you deny for example the law of identity you have to assume even in your denial the law of identity. So, um, you know, truths of logic can be proven transcendentally by showing that it's true by the impossibility of the contrary. Deny it, and you actually have to assume it. So you see that in Aristotle, and you see transcendental arguments come to more uh, fully uh, robust manifestations in the uh, the work of Immanuel Kant, who tried to demonstrate that there were these transcendental categories that provided the preconditions for knowledge and things like that. Um, so you see different kinds of transcendental arguments. The presuppositional transcendental argument is actually a little different than some of the traditional uh, transcendental arguments we see throughout the course of Western philosophy. Um, so for example, um, the presuppositional transcendental argument is an all-encompassing argument. We're trying to argue from a worldview perspective. Um, but throughout the course of uh, philosophical history, you have what we can call localized transcendental arguments. Uh, that's not really arguing for um, the truth of an entire worldview system, but it is arguing for the truth of some proposition. So for example, a localized transcendental argument, uh, is a good example of a localized transcendental argument would be something like Rene Descartes' cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. And so I prove my existence uh, in that even in my denying my existence, I have to presuppose my existence in order to deny my existence. So I would say that um, the, uh, the demonstration of self-existence is a sort of localized transcendental argument. So you see all sorts of arguments like this. They can be used in um, a number of, of ways. All right. Hope that answers your question. Um, Redefine Living says, awesome upload, by the way. Thank you so much. If those uh, who are listening don't know uh, what uh, Redefine Living is referring to, yesterday I had Christian apologist Anthony Rogers on to talk about the philosophical problem of the one and the many and how the uh, doctrine of the Trinity solves this very important and prolonged philosophical problem. So uh, if you want to check that out, um, you definitely, it's long, but uh, it'll be helpful if you give it a listen. 
Thank you. All right. Let's see here. Do, 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 do. All right. Well, I think that is it. Uh, Slam RN. Uh, Slam RN is uh, living evidence that human beings can be omnipresent. No, I'm just kidding. She's <laughs> Slam. This seems to be on every live stream, every apologetics live stream. I thank you so much for your support, and I'm sure everyone else who you kind of hop on uh, in the comments there appreciates your presence. So thank you so much. Um, all right. Well, I hope that satisfies everyone's questions. Um, I know that we can't answer literally everything. And even in my responses, it might raise more questions. Uh, but keep asking questions, keep thinking critically. And um, hopefully, um, you can see the connection between having a proper understanding of some of these complex issues and having a fully robust and consistent Christian worldview that provides a context to kind of grapple with these things. Some people say that if you adopt a Christian worldview and you, you know, uh, it, it kind of, um, it kind of vitiates against, say, like scientific progression. So if you say, well, God did it, then what's the point of doing science? And that's just that's just silly. Acknowledging that God is the fundamental foundation that even gives science a coherent context doesn't remove questions. We still ask the questions, you know, God created the world in a certain way. How did he create it so that certain things function the way that they do? We begin to explore our curiosity as we're able to kind of pursue our curiosities as we seek to explore more and more the world that God created. And it is the context of God and his revelation that allows that beautiful process of science to even uh, get off the floor. So um, hopefully you guys see these awesome connections and how the Christian worldview uh, really provides a foundation for all of these sorts of things. All right. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much. Um, the next, uh, well, I don't know what, when I'm going live next, but I got a couple of good things coming up and um, I will definitely let folks know. Thank you so much for the support. If you've enjoyed this live stream, please click the like button or the heart button. That helps. Uh, that helps a lot. If you listen through podcast, I would appreciate it if you go on iTunes and write a review. Uh, we have some wonderful reviews, whether you're a Christian or not. If you enjoy these conversations, I would really appreciate it. Also, if, if you don't already, uh, you can follow Revealed Apologetics on Instagram. I make short little funny videos that kind of talk about apologetics-related things. You might find that uh, interesting. So you can follow Revealed Apologetics on Instagram and um, ask your questions on Instagram, as well as email me at revealedapologetics at gmail.com. And of course, you can look up uh, some of my articles on revealedapologetics.com, the blog. And um, I think that's it. All right. So thank you so much, guys. That's it for this live stream. Take care and God bless. Bye-bye.